Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. A little less frigid, a little easier to get out of bed maybe than has historically been the case for us the last few Sundays. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to, to have you guys in our midst. Uh, we as a church, going back to uh, the launch of the fall, have been working our way through the book of Hebrews together. And, and we're going to get back after that fairly soon. Uh, at the beginning of February, we'll jump back into our study of the book of Hebrews but for the, the four weeks of January, the four Sundays that we're gathering in this place in January, we wanted to hit, hit a pause button on the Hebrews series and take a break to dive into a four-week series on the church, a series that I began with a question two weeks ago. When you think of the church, what comes to mind? How would you define the church? What is your perception of the church? In the first week of this series, uh, my goal was to awaken our hearts to the reality that you and I have a, an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began, that, that you're a part of a real-life fairy tale, whether you realize it or not. You're a part of an epic adventure. You're a part of a rescue story for the ages, the likes of which the greatest fiction writers of all time couldn't have possibly dreamed into existence. And I, I argued that you and I are part of this rescue story for the ages in order that we might joyfully spend our lives for the glory of God. That from the very beginning, you and I, we weren't created to be the center of this thing. This story is ultimately about God, that part of what it means to be the church is to embrace uh, the, the supporting cast role that we have, to let go of the empty chase of self-exaltation, that none of us gets the hero role in this story for the ages. That role is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that, that our role in the story is meaningless. As a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3.10 you are a metaphorical brush that God is using to add gospel color to the canvas of human history, which is quite amazing that you and I, as the church, we have a, an incredibly meaningful role to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began. And I said in week one that if that's true, and if that captures our hearts, which is a huge piece of this, then we will find ourselves freed from two things. Number one, the empty chase of self-exaltation because this whole thing is ultimately about God's glory, not ours. And secondly, we will find ourselves freed from apathy toward Jesus and the church because we have an incredibly meaningful part to play in the greatest story ever told. Last week, we came down from that, the visionary high altitude of seeing the story for what it is and our role in that very story. Um, and we took a look at the various pictures that the Bible uses to describe to us what the church is like. And my hope was that God would minimize the gap uh, that exists between the picture of the church in our mind and, and the picture of the church as truly revealed in the pages of Scripture. That the church, by definition, is people those whom Jesus gave himself up for. If you declare yourself to be part of the church, what you're saying is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. What you're saying is that you are a sinner for whom Jesus shed his blood. The church is a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And the Bible is not silent on its description of God's redeemed. The Bible is filled with pictures that describe to us what the church is like. The church is a family, a bride, branches on a vine, the church is a field, a building, a, a temple. The church is a priesthood, a house, a pillar of truth, a body, a flock. 
And each of these pictures is like a facet of a multifaceted jewel. And it's in spinning the jewel that we have an opportunity to appreciate what these word pictures collectively teach us about what the church is like. It's in the spinning of the jewel that we keep our view balanced rather than allowing one or two of these pictures to inform our perception of the church. And so last week, we spun the jewel. And we saw more of the fullness of the beauty of who Jesus is and who we are in him. And I mentioned that my hope would would be that we would more and more embrace the fullness of what it means to be the church. Not to be the church that reduces who we are to just one or two of these pictures in Scripture, but a people who more and more reflect the fullness of what the Scriptures teach us the, the church can and should be by God's grace. This morning, because alliteration is, is a glorious thing in the life of the church, I want to take a look at what I'm calling the pillars of the church. We've looked at and we've looked at the, the pictures. I want to look at the pillars of the church this morning, the core convictions, you might say, the core values. And my hope is that you, you find yourself encouraged to be a part of a church uh, that holds high these convictions, these values that we're going to take a look at in just a moment. And so it's with that being said that if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We're not going to be there very long. Similar to last week, I really could have said, open your Bibles, period, We're going to be all over the scriptures this morning, but 2 Timothy 3.16 is foundational in setting the stage for where we're going this morning. So you can open up there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll get going. God, thank you for yet another opportunity to gather as your people this morning. I pray that as we dive into the core convictions, the core values for which this church stands, uh, for which this church is willing to fight, that people would be encouraged, uh, that they are part of a church that holds high these deep convictions, these values, these, these pillars that I would argue that every church that gathers under the banner of the gospel should embrace Um, God, would you move in our midst? Would you encourage us? Would you show us uh, which of these pillars are are weakened in our own lives as individuals? And would you strengthen them in our lives so that collectively as the church, we might walk strong in these things for your glory and our joy? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Back in 2012, um, I was working my way through grad school and had jumped into a church planting residency program down in Orlando. And and part of the the church planting residency program involved going through an assessment process. Uh, I knew that uh, one of the hopes would be to plant within the Acts 29 church planting network, which we are, in fact, a part of. And so I was tasked with working my way through the Acts 29 church planting network's assessment process. And part of that assessment process involved filling out a number of questionnaires um, from uh, everything from family life to church planting strategy, from theology and doctrine to pastoral care scenarios. Um, It was a very thorough assessment process, believe me. We're talking about roughly 150 double-spaced pages worth of answers when all is said and done. Now, why do I share that with you this morning? Well, one of the many questions that I was asked back in 2012 was this. It's up on the screen. In regard to the values that will shape every aspect of the life of the church you hope to plant, please list at least six core convictions slash values which you as lead planter will never give in nor bend on as you plant slash lead the church. 
No big deal, just some light reading and responding, right? <laughs> Essentially, what I was asked for were pillars, okay? And, and I want to share those with you this morning because my answer to that question that I was asked nearly six years ago has, has changed in a very small way, which I'll get to at the end of this sermon. But for the most part, these core values that I'm about to walk you through remain true to this day. My answer to this question back in 2012 Similar to, to previous weeks in the series, nothing that I'm going to share with you this morning is novel for most of us. In fact, I'd strongly argue, as you heard in my prayer, that every one of the values that I'm about to share with you are values that every church should embrace. Here we go. Number one, scripture, the text. The scriptures must be the litmus test for truth and the final ultimate authority in regard to all matters of the church of which the scriptures speak. That the words that you hold in your hand this very moment are God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. As a result of its divine authorship, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the verbally inspired word of God, inerrant in the original manuscripts. I told you we were gonna get away from 2 Timothy 3.16 fairly quickly. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. If the Bible is breathed out by God, his very word, then all of it is true in that sense. Scripture is the highest and final authority by which all other authorities must be tested. That includes tradition, that includes reason, that includes uh, culture, and that includes personal experience. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not just true, it's truth. The, both the Old and the New Testaments reveal to us the hero of human history, Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Or famously, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we talked about this one before. Jesus with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the wake of his resurrection. We're told in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That Jesus is the hero of all of the Bible from start to finish, cover to cover. The scriptures are sufficient in providing all that we need for faith and obedience. Again, coming back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures must be the litmus test for truth, the final ultimate authority in regard to all matters of the church of which the scriptures speak. If you've been around here for any matter of time, you know that we hold the Bible very highly uh, as this supreme authority in our lives and in everything that we do, uh, seek to do as a church. It's why you're going to get blasted with about 40 Bible verses by the time this is all said and done this morning. Scripture, the text. Secondly, the second pillar would be this, culture, the context. Because the scriptures don't answer all questions in regard to matters of the church, some issues must be approached with an open hand, with decisions made through wisdom and prayer in a way that doesn't conflict with the scriptures and in a way that takes into account the context in which the church exists. That in regard to matters of contextualization, the church must make decisions that don't conflict with the breathed out word of God. Decisions that don't take away from the splendor of the gospel. Decisions that lift high the person and work of Jesus Christ because he is the hero. John chapter 12 verse 32, Jesus says, when I am, uh, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
and we participate in pointing people to Jesus as he draws people to himself by way of verses like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink, Paul says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The church exists to lift high the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the hero. Therefore, in matters of contextualization, decisions should be saturated with great wisdom and prayer in such a way that, that those decisions don't lift high the enemies of the gospel of legalism or license, but rather lift high the person and work of Jesus Christ. Scripture and culture, text and context. These next three, uh, you've heard entire series on these three, uh, kind of uh, expounded on and unpacked if you've been around for any season of time with us. Uh, number three, the gospel. A person never outgrows the gospel, and being that the church is a body of people, the church never outgrows the gospel. Everything that the church does must be related to the gospel and point people to the gospel in continual repentance and faith. Here we go. You know, if you, if you have been around, that you're not going to get through a series around here without an explicit declaration of the gospel. So here it is. We believe that in Jesus, God took on humanity. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We believe that Jesus offered his perfect, obedient life in man's place, resisting every temptation that man has faced. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. Romans 5, 19 puts it this way. Paul says, for as by the one man's disobedience, he's talking about Adam there, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. We believe that Jesus died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We believe that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, Satan, and demons. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he, Jesus, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul says, oh, oh death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has conquered death. Colossians 2, 15, he's conquered Satan and demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Paul says, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. We believe, and we've talked about this a lot in our Hebrew series, that Jesus ascended to heaven and now sits upon his throne, ruling and reigning as exalted high priest and triumphant king of the universe. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making much purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We believe that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He's Savior in that he alone has the ability to give salvation, and he's Lord in that he has the authority to demand submission of our lives. 
We believe that Jesus is coming back to wage war on his enemies and to gather his followers into a place of eternal peace together. I don't have time to read it this morning because it's pretty much all of Revelation 19 that argues for that one. You can go read that this week in your time with, with God. We believe that as a result of who he is, Jesus can make some really audacious promises to us. He, he promises us a new record, a new heart, and a new inheritance. That by taking our record of debt upon himself in our place, he provides us with a clean record before God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having, listen to this, having forgiven us all, of our trespasses, all by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt he set aside, nailing it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Not just a new record, though. He promises to give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, God doesn't just want to save us from sin's penalty. He also wants to save us from sin's power. But that's not all. I sound like some, some TV salesman, right? Jesus also promises to save his people from sin's presence forever. God's children are promised a new inheritance that includes an eternal home where we will be delivered from sin forever. Revelation chapter 21, verses three and four it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Notice that it's not just about being saved from sin's presence forever. We're saved to God's presence forever. And these promises are ours through repentance and faith by God's grace. And to be sure, repentance and faith are not one-time things. We're sanctified through ongoing repentance and faith. We never outgrow the gospel. We always need the gospel in our lives. Therefore, everything that a church does must be related to the gospel and point people to the gospel in continual ongoing repentance and faith. Number four, pillar number four, community. The one another life is not negotiable because those who have been reconciled to God have also been reconciled to others and are called to walk in repentance and faith in the context of relationships with gospel intentionality. Referencing one of the word pictures that we looked at last week, one of the many, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as a body. He argues that the body is not made up of one member, but rather many members. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12 Paul says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He, he goes on to say that God created the members of his body, the church, to function in a way that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You, you see this concept of relationships with gospel intentionality on a local church level in the book of Acts. Very famous passage, Acts chapter 2. Luke describes the local church in the following way. He says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In this passage, Luke paints a a really beautiful, compelling a picture of Christian community. We see individual Christians coming together to hear the teaching of, of the gospel, to fellowship with one another, to eat with one another, to, to pray with one another, to unite with one another, to meet each other's needs, to attend the temple together, to praise God with one another, and to walk alongside each other in pointing people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. In the individualistic culture in which you and I live, the church cannot afford to minimize the importance of authentic Christian community. The church is called to reflect this reality together in such a way that that those who don't love and follow Jesus are compelled to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. In In a practical sense, this is why we scatter into community groups and gospel alliances, meeting with one another. We have an opportunity to break bread with one another, to pray together to share needs with one another, things that are really difficult to do in this environment when we gather, to preach the gospel to each other, to encourage one another toward uh, deeper repentance and faith, to walk alongside one another in an effort to point people who don't know and love and follow Jesus to Jesus. Existing, you might say, not only for internal edification, accountability, and growth, but also for outward engagement of the culture with the gospel, which leads me to pillar number five, mission. In defining the mission of the church, it simply must not be reduced to less than what Jesus, the sent one, sends his church to accomplish. The church is sent individually and corporately, locally and globally, from now until Jesus returns to proclaim the gospel in word and deed to the glory of God. The goal goal of the church's mission is ultimately the worship of God. The church's mission exists because the worship of God does not exist in certain places across the globe. So wherever God is not worshipped, the church is commissioned to go with the good news of Jesus Christ. Very famous passage, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, what many refer to as the Great Commission. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think in terms of the who, who, where, when, and how of the church's mission. Regarding the who, the command in Matthew 28 is for the individual as well as Christians collectively. Regarding the where, we're called to take the gospel into all contexts, from the neighbor across the street to the person across the globe, which is why you have verses like Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Local, regional, national, global gospel proclamation. In regard to the when, Christians are called to proclaim the gospel from now until Jesus returns. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Regarding the how, 
Christians are called to live our lives in such a way that the gospel is proclaimed in both our words and our actions. Jesus not only declared the gospel of the kingdom, but he manifested the gospel of the kingdom. He restored broken images of God everywhere he went. Can't really reference that one other than to say, read the four gospel accounts. See it all over the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me say it this way. If we only proclaim the gospel but don't live gospel-centered lives, we will repel people from Jesus. And if we live gospel-centered lives but don't proclaim the gospel, no one will know that it's Jesus that compels us to live the way that we do. So the goal is not simply to practice what we preach, but also to declare to preach what we practice, to proclaim the gospel. It's a both and. Going back to the the idea of, of scripture and culture, text and context, it's important to note that that though the message of the gospel never changes, the methods of engaging the culture with the gospel are ever-changing. From little league fields to workplace water coolers to neighborhood playgrounds, local watering holes, a lost and dying world needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ that we possess and are called to proclaim. I've got three more for you, and they kind of get after the all-encompassing nature of the Christian life, the head, the heart, and the hands of Christianity, you might say. Number six, theology, the mind. Christianity is a thinking faith. It's through the mind's right understanding of the excellencies of Christ that our affections are stirred and we are moved to action. In other words, right thinking leads to right feeling and right doing. Therefore, the church must be concerned with communicating the excellencies of Christ in such a way that the mind is awakened to the wonder of God. We've talked about this before on a number of occasions, but the reality is this. Everyone in the world is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian because everyone has thoughts about God. Everyone has thoughts about God because what can be known about God is plain to all of us. God has revealed something of himself to all of us. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That I would go so far as to say even the atheist is a theologian because the atheist has thoughts about God, namely that God does not exist. So the question is not whether any of us are theologians or not. The question is whether our theology aligns with reality or not. Christianity is a thinking faith. God commands us to love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The apostle Paul emphasized the importance of loving God with our minds, saying things like this, Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Just a couple of the the many verses in the New Testament that speak of the importance of the mind and the life of the Christian. In light of these truths, we as the church are, are meant to stir one another toward good theological thinking to the glory of God. That God made us with a mind and we are to, to love him by his grace with the fullness of our mind's capacity. 
in every aspect of life, from, from the way we watch movies to, to the way we sit and listen to sermons and everything in between. Pillar number seven, worship, the heart. In defining worship, it simply must not be reduced to a service that one attends or the music that one sings. Worship is the giving of oneself and making much of something or someone as one's ultimate treasure. And the Christian church's ultimate treasure and object of worship is the triune God. In the same way that everyone is a theologian, everyone so also is a worshiper. The world is not divided into two categories, those who worship and those who don't. We were designed to worship. We can't help ourselves. Before the fall, the creator God was the object of the affection of his image bearers. But since the fall, human beings have exchanged the, the glory and worship of God for the worship of created things, which is why you have passages like Romans chapter 1, verses 24-25. Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, sinful man, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Being that all human beings are worshipers, probably helpful to know what that is. What does that even mean? What is worship? I'm arguing that it's something more than just the, the services we attend and the songs that we sing. Well, Jesus, in responding to the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 15, um, he calls them hypocrites and references a passage from Isaiah that he says describes them well. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. At the very least, Jesus defines worship here as something more than the honoring of God with our lips. In fact, he moves beyond the lips to the heart. Jesus is very good at doing that if you read the gospel accounts. Paul helps to clarify this concept of worship even more. Um, in speaking to the people of Athens, he calls them religious and points out the objects of their worship. For Paul, the idea of worship must have an object upon which we place our affections. Paul develops the concept of worship even more in his letter to the church in Rome. Very famous passage again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in this passage, Paul refers to worship as the presentation of one's body, the transformation of one's mind, and the confirmation of one's will to God. So I think it would be safe to say that, that worship for the Christian is no less than the giving of ourselves fully and making much of the triune God as our ultimate treasure. If that's true, we, especially in the Bible Belt, have done a great disservice to this word as we've reduced it to less than what it is. It must be more than a service we attend or the music that we sing. When the church gathers, its purpose is certainly to worship God. When the church sings, we are certainly worshiping God as we do so. But the church exists for much more than this in regard to the concept of worship. Number eight, service, the hands. In the same way that Jesus came as the embodiment of God to serve others and ultimately sacrifice his life for others, the church is to be the embodiment of God in the culture, serving others and sacrificing for others in a way that points to the person and work of Jesus. Maybe a helpful way to think about this would be to think about motivation and the model that we've been given in Jesus Christ. 
that as far as motivation goes, it's important to acknowledge that God is not honored when we serve him because we think he needs us to accomplish his will. God isn't dependent upon us. Our our lack of servant-heartedness doesn't cause God to sweat it out, you might say. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. You've heard this one a number of times from this stage. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The God is not dependent upon our serving him, He graciously invites us into this story with a meaningful role for his glory and our good. It's also important to acknowledge that God is not honored when we serve him out of obligation any more than my wife is honored when I rub her feet out of obligation. God is most honored and made much of when we enjoy serving him, when it's our delight to do so. What about the model we've been giving in regard to serving, namely Jesus Well, the scriptures tell us, Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The scriptures also tell us, Philippians 2, 7, that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That Jesus sets the standard for the concept of serving in a way that brings honor to God. Jesus served in a way uh, that his life was sacrificed for the sake of others. Jesus served in a way that humility was at the heart of his serving. Paul emphasizes this concept of humble, others-minded service when he calls the saints not to serve as people-pleasers, but rather as God-pleasers in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We come back to the very beginning of this series. Serving so that people might make much of us, serving in order to make a spectacle of ourselves, is what I've referred to in this series as the empty chase of self-exaltation. We have a right understanding of what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ when we serve humbly, when we live humbly, sacrificing our lives for the sake of others and the glory of God, pointing them to Jesus, the perfect sacrificial servant. And again, like worship, we're not called to do that when we gather alone, but also when we scatter to live lives with others-minded humility that points people around us to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those last three pillars, as I mentioned, theology, worship, and service, communicate the all-encompassing nature of the work of the gospel in the life of the Christian. The gospel empowers right thinking, right feeling, and right doing. And we want to be balanced. To only embrace right thinking leads to intellectualism. To only embrace right feeling leads to emotionalism. To only embrace right doing leads to legalism. And and you begin to see, you begin to think about previous church experiences, maybe even whole denominations or networks that get off kilter. So we don't want to do that. We want to be balanced. We want to embrace the fullness of the Christian life, both individually and collectively. We want to emphasize what it means to have a mind, a heart, and a will that are used to enjoy making much of God. Coming back to the question that I was asked six years ago, I mentioned that for the most part, this list represents uh, what I would say today, that which I said back in 2012. That question again, in regard to the values that will shape every aspect of the life of the church you hope to plant, please list at least six core convictions which you as lead planter will never give in nor bend on as you plant slash lead the church. There are a number of good things unmentioned this morning that I think you could easily 
bring under the banner of one of the eight pillars that I've already mentioned this morning, but let me tell you what I would change. One of the things that troubles me that I did not include back in 2012 is this prayer. What was I thinking? If anything of lasting significance is to be accomplished, the church must be a people on their faces before the Lord, asking the Spirit of God to move in power. I'm telling you that this morning with a repentant heart. The church is powerless without the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit of God, nothing of lasting significance will be accomplished. As an old friend once said to me, um, God moves mountains, but prayer moves God. Prayer is the acknowledgement that we're completely dependent upon the Lord. You, you can't get very far in the book of Acts if you read that book of the Bible, the earliest days of the New Testament church, without seeing some account of God's people on their faces before the living God. When you see the, the book of Acts, what, what you're seeing is a band of brothers and sisters who refuse to put feet to the gospel without first putting knees to the gospel. Jesus tells us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And amazingly, one of the greatest weapons of warfare that we have is prayer. Zach Nielsen, fellow Acts 29 church planter, he says it this way. He says, nothing looks like humility as much as a man or woman alone in the small hours of the morning crying out to their heavenly father. Nothing smells like humility as much as a small group with no agenda other than asking the father to move mightily in its town. Nothing sounds like humility as much as a broken sinner crying out to God for help. One of the humblest things you can do is to pray. It's an outward manifestation of an inward conviction, the conviction that we can't manufacture new churches, but God can. And so we ask and ask and ask. As we move forward as a church, I pray by God's grace that we embrace all eight of those pillars that you heard prior to this one. But my prayer moving forward is, may we be known as a people who puts knees to the gospel, a people dependent upon the Lord who pray for the Spirit to move mightily as we then put feet to the gospel. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship through the partaking of the Lord's Supper together, through song, through prayer. There will be people in the back to pray with and for you if you like to take advantage of that. Um, as far as communion goes, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, as you even prepare to come and receive of the elements, I, I would just encourage you to um, sit back and, and take a moment, if the Spirit of God has yet to do this for you, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what, what, what of these pillars is weakened in your life individually to thank Jesus for dying for even the weakened pillars in our lives. And then to ask God by his grace to strengthen those pillars individually, knowing that as he does that, he will strengthen those pillars collectively for us as a church.